Let me just read this morning's passage, and then we'll pray and we'll jump in and get to work. We've got a good bit of ground to cover. Beginning in chapter 3 of the book of Philippians, verse 12, Paul says this. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for making us your own by the blood of Christ Jesus. Thank you for stooping down, Jesus, entering into the slums of human history on our behalf to save us out of the dumpsters of depravity and to give us a home and a family as adopted children of the King. God, we love you. May the gospel motivate everything that we're going to talk about this morning. Holy Spirit, would you begin to work even now in our hearts to reveal things that we desperately need to see that maybe we came in this morning not seeing or having forgotten about. And as a result, God, would you get the glory and may we get the joy. We lift these things up to you, Father, by the power of your Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, last week... Mike did a fantastic job, I thought, of unpacking the first half of Philippians chapter 3, this sharp distinction between an identity rooted in Jesus and an identity rooted in anything and, and everything else, both idolatrous and religious. Going back to, to last week, the apostle Paul refers to all of his religious accolades as rubbish. We'll talk about that even more this morning. That for the apostle Paul, it's not about what you do or don't do ultimately. It's about Jesus and what he's done. And he declared it is finished and he meant it. There's nothing to be added to the redeeming work of Jesus. Jesus paid it all. When we sing that, we mean that. Going back to what Mike said last week, if you're a Christian... You're a declared saint. You've been gifted the righteous record of Jesus Christ, and that is something to celebrate, and we should. It, it's a declaration of God's lavish love and grace that's meant to compel us to now run the race hard, to fight the good fight of faith. But, but some, in hearing of the lavish love and grace of God, tend to misinterpret it. And that's what Paul's going to come after this morning. Some take it to mean that they've arrived, that because they've been gifted the, the perfect righteous record of Jesus, there's nothing to be done. That, that they've already arrived at the finish line, so to speak. It's a, it's a misunderstanding of 
how righteousness works. Going back to a word picture that I've given before, if you're married, um, when you got married, the day that uh, you said your vows, you were declared to be one flesh. But if you are married, you know that for the rest of your life, you actually work to become what you've already been declared to be, right? You grow in union with your spouse. You grow in intimacy with your spouse. The same is true of the Christian life, that, that when you're converted, when you're brought into the family of God, when you become a Christian, you are declared in that moment to be righteous, based on the righteous record of Jesus Christ on your behalf. But it doesn't mean that for the rest of your life, we, we don't then run hard to become what we've been declared to be, that we are being conformed into the image of Jesus every day along the way until we die or he returns, Romans 8 tells us. Others take God's grace to mean that there's no fight to be fought in the sense that we can just become complacent. It's not that we've arrived, but we can just become lackadaisical in in the Christian life, uh, very lethargic, so to speak. God sees me as righteous in Christ, so I don't have to fight at all. There's nothing to fight for. And in this morning's passage, the Apostle Paul is going to challenge both of those assumptions. He's going to press on those who think that they've arrived, who have brought a spirit of haughtiness into the church, and he's going to push back on, on this idea that the sainthood that we've been given is an excuse to stop running hard. The, the big idea I can't say it any better than one of the commentators that I read this week. Ryan Kelly in his commentary says this as far as the big idea for this morning's passage. He says, The Christian life is neither one of perfection nor of passivity, but a progressive pursuit of Christ and his likeness as we await his return and the consummation of all things. That's what we're going after This morning, beginning in verse 12, Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. A couple of questions right off the bat. What is it that Paul has not yet obtained? We want to answer that question in verse 12. And secondly, what is it that Paul presses on to make his own? All right, let's take those one at a time. Number one, what is it that Paul has not yet obtained? This is why context is so important. It's critical. Going back to verse seven of last week's passage that we looked at, Paul says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, Paul says, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, Paul says, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, verse 12. What is it that Paul has not yet obtained? Answer, the resurrection from the dead. That one day, all of us will experience a resurrection from the dead. And those of us who Jesus has made his own will experience a transformation in that moment in which every part of us that has not yet been conformed to his image will be conformed to his image in a blink. It's gonna be unbelievable. In that moment, sin will be no more. There will be no more battle with your flesh, with the residual hostility of your sin nature. No more evil thoughts. No more impure motives. 
No more misinformed affections. No more struggle with willpower. Anybody say amen to that day? I know I do. But Paul says that day hasn't come yet. It's interesting in verse 12, the the word this in most of your Bibles, not that I have already obtained this. That word's not there in the original Greek. English translators had to include it in order to make sense of it for us based on the language that we speak as human beings. In the original Greek, it literally reads, not that I have already obtained. It's kind of like how we throw around the phrase, such and such thinks he or she has arrived. Arrived at, at what? We don't have to include an object in that sentence, right? Because we know that when we say somebody ha- thinks they've arrived, that we're talking about the, a spirit of, of arrogance, of haughtiness that they bring to the table. That's the idea that Paul's getting at in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained. Not that I've already arrived. I love those words that we sing. We just sang them moments ago. I'm not who I was. Now I am who I am, a sinner saved, a stumbling saint. Those words encapsulate the both and of the Christian life. Going back to what Mike mentioned last Sunday, are you declared to be a saint because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you? Yes and amen. And you should celebrate that with reckless abandon every day of your life that you've been brought into the family of God, a child of God, a friend of Jesus. You get to sit at God's lunch table. Like, that's good news. You should celebrate that. But we're saints who stumble our way to glory, are we not? Paul recognizes that he's not yet the glorified version of himself. He knows that he's still a work in progress. He acknowledges that he's not yet perfected. And his response is not, so, so I just, I give up. I quit. The race is hard, I don't, I don't see the progress, so I'm done. No, he says, I press on. I press on to make it my own, which brings us to the second question. What is it that Paul presses on to make his own? What is Paul out to gain by this pressing on that he talks about in verse 12? Again, context, critical. You have to go back to verse 8 to get the answer to that question. The gain in Paul's mind is Jesus. It's knowing Jesus more. It's seeing and savoring Jesus more day by day by day, as we just sang. It's fixing our eyes on him. It's not that the Christian life is receiving Jesus once and then moving on to something else. There is nothing else. You've seen and savored Jesus. Paul says, great, keep doing that. See and savor Jesus for the rest of this day, Sunday, and then wake up tomorrow and see and savor Jesus Monday, and then wake up on Tuesday and see and savor Jesus again. And you just keep doing that until the day you die or Jesus returns. And let everything else in Paul's mind be the outworking of seeing and savoring Jesus. Welcome to the Christian life. John 15 says it really well. One of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible Jesus says this, he says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That anything fruitful that you and I bring to the table as it pertains to the Christian life, 
will be the direct result of our abiding in Jesus. Our growing in intimacy with him. Our seeing and savoring him. Paul wants more of Jesus. And notice, it's not so that Jesus will love him and make him his own. It's because Jesus loves me, Paul says, and has already made me his own. He says, I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. But to press on in hopes of earning God's love will only lead to condemnation in the end. None of us, none of us can impress God in such a way that he'll go, oh, please, please sit at my lunch table now. That's not how you got to his table in the lunchroom. It's by grace and grace alone. It's by Jesus earning that for you, living the life you could never live, dying the death that you deserve to die. We all press on imperfectly, make no mistake about it. Going back to a few weeks ago, Paul says, it's not about working for our, our salvation, it's about working out our salvation. It goes back to all the identity stuff that we talked about last week. Paul knows that he's the apple of God's eye. Paul knows that Jesus considers him a friend. Paul knows that he's an adopted child into the family of God. Paul knows that he's loved with a love that outshines all other loves. A love that would stoop down and put on human flesh. A love that would live the life that Paul knows he could never live. The perfect sinless life that he could never bring to the table before a holy God. A love that would die a criminal's death, even death on a cross, going back to Philippians 2, on our behalf. That that's your Jesus. Paul wants us desperately to see him over and over and over again. He, he lived your life and died your death so that you can run hard. Not to earn anything, but simply as a, as a response of God's love for you. That when you soak in the love of God in Christ, it has a way of compelling you to press on. To fight the good fight of faith. To stand firm in the Lord, as Paul's going to say in verse 1 of chapter 4. Every morning when we wake up, for those of you who don't know, my wife and I, we have two girls, uh, two and a half and one and a half. They're 13 months apart. And so for the better part of the last two years, when, when we wake up, oftentimes to their cackling in their cribs, um, we, we go in, we, we change diapers, we take them to the bathroom, and we have uh, teeth brushing time. And then we, we make what, what we consider to be a journey which is to get from the upstairs of our home to the downstairs of our home. And the way that that has worked for the last two years of our lives is uh, Brooks and I will each grab a kid and cling hold to them with everything that we've got. And in return, they cling to us with everything that they have. And, and their clinging is not what keeps them from falling. It's the fact that we have a hold of them, but there's something about our nearness in grabbing hold of them with everything that we've got that causes them to want to grab hold of us in that embrace. That's the picture of the Christian life. It's this idea that God has grabbed hold of you and rescued you from the ocean bottom. He's, he's clinging to you with everything that he has, and in response, we cling to him. We grab hold of him with everything that we have. To, to use Paul's language, if you could sum it up in this study that we've been in with respect to this book of the Bible, Paul essentially is saying this, today I press on, today I work out my salvation with fear and trembling, 
Today I fight for progress and joy in the faith. Today I strive for the faith of the gospel. Today I set aside selfish ambition and conceit. Today I count others more significant than myself. Today I look not only to my own interests but also to the interests of others. Today I hold fast to the word of life. Today I rejoice in the Lord. Today I count all other sources of identity as lost and embrace the identity given to me in Jesus, today I cling to Christ and his cross with everything I am and everything I have, and I do so because Jesus loves me and has grabbed hold of me and made me his own, and because I'm still a work in progress. Verse 13, you're like, man, are we going to get out of here today? I promise we are. I know I haven't preached in three weeks, but I'm not going to keep you here till dinner. We will get out of here. Verse 13, brothers, Paul says, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Again, declaring himself to be a work in progress, not yet having arrived. But one thing I do, Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Notice that language that Paul uses to paint a picture of the Christian life. Straining forward. Pressing on. You, you do know that we all strain in life, right? That, that that's all of us. That, that it's not this false distinction that we oftentimes bring to the table uh, with words like worship and theology. There, there's some who, who believe that some of us are worshipers and others of us aren't. But that's just not true. We're all worshipers. The question is, what is the object of, of each of our affections? Same thing's true of theology. It's not that some are theologians and others aren't. The word theology in its most bare bones definition is a word about God. If you have something to say about God, you are a theologian. Even an atheist in that sense is a theologian. An atheist has something to say about God, namely that God does not exist. And the same is true when we look at verses 13 and 14, that, that this is all encompassing. We're all running hard towards something, so to speak. We're all straining. We all press on. The real question that we have to wrestle with in this morning's passage is this. What is it that you prize? Paul says, but one thing I do. What's your one thing? If you could answer that question, what do you prize most? What's that carrot that's dangling out in front of you that causes you to run hard? Look at your straining and you'll probably get an answer to that question. Really good indicator. We all make sacrifices every day, every one of us. We all exert ourselves towards some end. Some of you have heard this quote before. Malcolm Forbes came up with the famous statement, he who dies with the most toys wins. And so he spent the entirety of his life straining toward a prize at the end, namely the obtaining of the most toys. We're all pressing on towards something, every one of us. If someone were to evaluate your straining, what would they determine is most valuable to you? That might be a great question to wrestle with and ask someone who knows you really well this week. For Paul, the greatest treasure is Jesus. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul understands that it's not, it's not that he who dies with the most toys wins. It's that he who dies with the most toys is dead and someone else gets his toys. He who prizes Jesus above all things wins no matter what. Because if he lives, he does so with the aim of seeing and savoring and making much of Jesus and growing in intimacy with him. And if he dies, he gets to see Jesus face to face. 
Either way, he cannot lose. Paul prizes Jesus above all things, and thus his straining forward, his pressing on, is for the sake of Christ. Jesus has made Paul his own, and so he's happy to run for the sake of knowing Jesus more and more and more and drawing other people into that knowing, that seeing and savoring. And to be sure, this is not some easy task. This is work. Again, straining forward, pressing on. It's work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's marathon running. The word goal in verse 14 comes from the Greek word skapos. It's where we get our word scope. It, has, it carries with it this word picture of the finish line or an archery target. It's living with a particular aim in mind, a bullseye, so to speak. It's, it's living with your eyes fixed on the finish line and, and that carrot that's dangling as the prize. And for Paul, the aim, the prize, is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's seeing and savoring Jesus. If, if seeing and savoring Jesus is not your ultimate gain, your ultimate prize, you, you won't be compelled to run the gospel race with great passion. What's at the finish line always dictates the way that we run. If you don't treasure Christ above all things, when Jesus is dangled at the finish line as the prize to be obtained, we won't run hard. You could say it this way. The intensity of your running is in direct correlation to the intensity of your love for the prize. Let me say that again. The intensity of your running is in direct correlation to the intensity of your love for the prize. The application is not, first and foremost, run harder so much as it is look harder. Take a hard look at Jesus who died for you so that he might make you his friend. It all comes back to Philippians chapter 2. It really is the crux, verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2, for this whole letter. It creates the ripple effect of everything that comes before chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and everything that flows forth out of chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. You want to run the race well? Keep looking at the Jesus of Philippians 2, and Philippians 3 will become a reality for you. The author of Hebrews says it this way. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 and uh, chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race. There's that word picture again that is set before us. Looking, notice, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Sounds a whole lot like Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, doesn't it? Paul sees the Christian life as a marathon to be run, with Jesus waiting at the finish line to embrace us with open arms. Is that, is that the prize for you? Part of what it means to, to run that marathon for Paul is, is forgetting about what lies behind and, and understand this, Paul's not so much driving at the forgetting of past sins. He's driving in context at the forgetting of past successes that might cause him to think that he's finally arrived. Right? Going back to last week, Paul put a really good resume on the table, religiously speaking. Right, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And last week, we saw Paul declaring that resume to be what? Garbage. Rubbish. Throw it on the dung heap. 
And now, even as a Christian, he's not going to revel in his past ministry successes as though he's arrived. He's not fixing his eyes on the last person he led to the Lord. He's not fixing his eyes on the last successful Bible study he led. He's not fixing his eyes on the last really smart response that he gave in a community group setting. That's not the Apostle Paul. Like any good runner in a race, he knows that to look back over his shoulder may lead to distraction, may lead to lost momentum, maybe even tripping and falling on the track because he doesn't see what's to come. And so he looks to what lies ahead. He looks to the finish line with a picture of Jesus with outstretched arms, and that compels him to humbly keep trucking along. Verse 15, let those of us, Paul says, who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you in his kindness. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. It's funny. Paul's just talked extensively about uh, not yet having achieved perfection. And now he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. All right, this, this train wrecks mature Christianity in the Bible Belt, to be sure. The most mature Christians are those who think they have a long way to go. The most immature Christians are those who declare victory too early, using this word picture of the race, beating their chests as if the race is over, rubbing their supposed letterman's jacket in everyone else's face. Welcome to the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. We see it over and over again in the Bible. Maturity is refusing to be a glory thief. Maturity is acknowledging that we're, we're all a work in progress. Maturity is running hard with our eyes fixed on Jesus, open wide with his arms at the finish line, confident because he's made us his own, because we're the apple of his eye, and humble because it's all about him. Paul goes on to say, In verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Here, Paul points out this idea that not everyone's eyes are fixed on Jesus. Some are running the race of life with eyes fixed on themselves, with eyes fixed on the things of this world. And Paul's saying, don't fall into that trap. Don't buy into the lie that he who dies with the most toys wins. Don't run with the aim of glory thieving, with this clawing after trying to be the main attraction day after day. Don't run as though this is all there is. And Paul very practically gives two ways to avoid such foolishness. He says, number one, look at those who are running with their eyes locked on Jesus and imitate what you see. That there's something about seeing people, people's eyes fixed on Jesus, those who surround us within this family, that's meant to spur us on. And, and again, it's the upside down nature of the kingdom of God that the people worthy of imitating are not those who need to be imitated in order to feel validated. Let me say that again because I think that's crucial that we grab hold of that. The people worthy of imitating are those who don't need to be imitated in order to feel validated. That those people who have, uh, need to have all eyes on them in any given moment to feel like a somebody, don't imitate that, Paul says. 
Those people who despair when they don't get enough Facebook likes, don't imitate that. And can I just say, if that describes you, can I just lovingly uh, and gently invite you to relinquish your grip on that empty chase of self-exaltation this morning? Can I just invite you to stop pursuing that which you've already been given in Christ Jesus, the perfect approval of God? How radically would that change Monday when we wake up tomorrow if we all stared in the mirror and said, because of Christ, who he is and what he's done for me, I'm a child of the king. Going back to everything Mike said last week, I'm the apple of God's eye. I've been adopted into this family. I'm a friend of Jesus. I get to sit at God's lunch table in this cosmic lunchroom and then allow everything that we live out tomorrow to be fueled by that moment. How radically would things change? On the other hand, those people who don't seem to care whether or not you're looking their way because they're looking at Jesus, look at those people as an example. Isn't it ironic? Those people who uh, don't seem to be clawing after validation because they really do believe that they've got all the validation they need in Jesus Christ, look at those people as an example, Paul says. I think it's so easy when we get into these imitating passages, these passages of, of looking at others as examples, which we've, we've gotten into on a number of occasions in this book of the Bible, it's so easy to, to miss the, the heart, the, the deep root of what Paul's after and ultimately what God's after in giving us uh, this book of the Bible. It's so easy to go just deep enough that you miss the, the deepest part of the root of it all. Let, let me explain what I mean. I was talking to another pastor within the Crosspoint family, a guy named Brian Sullivan. He's planting uh, a congregation down in Jupiter, Florida, South Florida. And he and I were talking. Uh, we lived in Orlando around the same time. Uh, and while he was in Orlando, he had a friend visit from out of town. And while that friend was, was in central Florida, uh, Brian and, and that friend of his went and grabbed coffee. And they're talking about you know, what, what their lives are like and uh, somehow along the way, they got into the book of Romans, and we're talking about the book of Romans. And um, as they finished up their conversation and were walking away, the, the guy looked at Brian, and he said, man, I really want what you have. And Brian's going, I wonder what he means by that. I hope he means Jesus. And he asked the guy, he said, what, what do you mean? And, and the guy said, well, man, you, you have a really you have a great home. You have a great life. Like You live in a great neighborhood in a great city. You have a a beautiful wife, you have a couple of adorable kids who seem to be well-behaved most of the time. Who wouldn't want that? And, and I think it's easy for us to sniff that out and go, oh, yeah, he missed it. The misfire, taking good things and making them ultimate things. But we can very easily do that with respect to uh, the spiritual disciplines and, and the things of religiosity as well, can we not? I mean, we can walk away from a conversation with a brother or sister in Christ and go, I want your prayer life. I want your knowledge of the scriptures. And, and to determine that we're going to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps in our strength and claw after a better uh, prayer or Bible reading plan. We can claw after all of those things just like we can claw after a trophy spouse and a home and miss Jesus in all of it. Right? Point in case, the Pharisees. Right? They prayed long prayers. They were really good at praying. They were worthy of imitating in that regard. They knew the Old Testament forwards and backwards. The Apostle Paul is a great example of that. It's this subtly dangerous declaration going back to John 15. 
I want the fruit without concern for the vine. Totally possible. I want to bear fruit, but, but I can't seem to connect the dots that the bearing is rooted in the abiding. That makes sense? Critical that we distinguish the difference between the two. It's first and foremost about fixing our eyes on Jesus, abiding in him, pursuing an intimate relationship with him. And as we do, knowing that we will then bear fruit. It's not about trashing our Bible reading plan or our time carved out for prayer, but it's about asking the question in terms of motive and in terms of, of content with respect to those, those times, is there abiding to be found in this? A- am I after the abiding that comes in this, the cultivating of a relationship with Jesus? Simply put, I, I just, as a church, I don't want us to miss out on the abiding because we're so fixated on the bearing. Does that, does that make sense? Looking like Jesus comes as a result of looking at Jesus. That when we, when we look at those around us, like the Apostle Paul, as examples, we should not only look at the fruit in their lives, but we should look at what's, what's creating that. We should look at the way they're fixing their eyes on Jesus and, and long for that. We should see the abiding in their lives and long for that in our lives as the root of, of everything that's birthed out of that. D.A. Carson says it this way in his commentary. He says, look around for those whose constant confidence is Jesus Christ, whose constant boast is Jesus Christ, whose constant delight is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center of their worship, the center of their gratitude, the center of their love, the center of their hope. Emulate those whose constant confidence and boast is in Christ Jesus and in nothing else. That's one way to avoid destruction. That's one way to avoid wasting your life. That's one way to avoid clawing after something that can never truly fulfill you. The second is this. Remember where your ultimate citizenship lies. Remember, Philippi was a miniature version of Rome. Um, It it was an official Roman colony with full rights for Roman citizens. The people who lived there were proud to declare themselves to be, I'm Roman. To be a Roman citizen was to be Roman in every way. Roman allegiances, Roman culture making and shaping, Roman thinking. And Paul says, no, you're a citizen of heaven ultimately, afforded to you by Jesus Christ. Therefore, let the gospel shape you in every way. Gospel thinking, gospel culture shaping, gospel allegiances. If you think that it's all about the here and now, you'll spend your life trying to acquire the most toys. You'll become the next Malcolm Forbes. You'll spend your life straining forward for a perishable prize. You'll spend your life trying to get as much of the spotlight as you can as you build your kingdom for your own glory. But if you really do believe that there's an eternal kingdom that you can give people glimpses of now, going back to the latter part of Mike's sermon last week, and if your eyes are locked in on the king of that kingdom, then you'll spend your life for the sake of that kingdom and its king. And Paul says, that king He's coming back. He really is. Going back to verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He really is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, going back to chapter 2. He really is coming back to eradicate evil and make everything sad untrue. We really are going to experience a transformation in which every part of us that is yet to be conformed to his image will be conformed in that blink of an eye. There really will be no more sin. 
There really will be no more battle with the flesh. There will, really will be no more evil thoughts, no more misinformed affections, no more struggle with willpower. It's really coming, church. And in light of that glorious day, in your citizenship in that eternal kingdom, in your love for that eternal king, Paul says, run. Run with everything you have. Run hard with your eyes fixed on Jesus the king as the prize. And as you run, point as many people as you can to him along the way. You're going to stumble. Doesn't mean you're not a saint. Jesus has made you his own. You are the apple of God's eye. You are a child of the living God. Embrace that when you wake up tomorrow. And Paul says, therefore, in light of that truth, verse one of chapter four, as we close, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Don't veer off the gospel path. Keep your eyes fixed firmly on this Jesus who has redeemed you, who loves you deeply. Going back to that picture of, of Brooks and I carrying our girls down the stairs every morning, knowing that Jesus has a firm grip on you, cling to him with everything that you have. Allow the lavish grace and love of God for you in Christ, his grip on you, to be the fuel that drives you to persevere, to run hard, to cling to him to the end.